Hey, podcast listeners, the topics are pouring in through our text messaging pod ring is what I'm calling you. You can join it. 833-947-3684. Text the word pod. And then just send us messages. We interact with you, answer your questions about products and classes, and take your suggestions so that we can have a great podcast show. You're listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. I'm Julie Bogart. The Brave Writer Podcast is designed to support parents who take an active interest in their children's education, whether you homeschool or not. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. For many of you, Dr. Becky Kennedy is as familiar as a great, well-worn pair of blue jeans. Dr. Becky goes by the moniker Dr. Becky Good Inside on Instagram, where she has amassed over a million followers. Dr. Becky Kennedy is a clinical psychologist and a mom of three. She's rethinking the way we raise our kids. Her goal to empower parents to feel sturdier and more equipped to manage all the challenges every parent faces. I'm excited to share her with you because as home educators, those of you listening who are, we all know that you have compounded the challenge of parenting by spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week with your precious children. We tackle all the topics from video games to tolerating frustration to thinking through how to deal with a child who expresses a lot of resistance and anger. Dr. Becky Kennedy brings an internal family systems perspective to the job of parenting, but offers us so many amazing practical tools. Uh, Parents have been asking me for a long time, what's a book you recommend for parenting? And I feel that I have finally found it. I strongly recommend Good Inside by Dr. Becky Kennedy, and I hope that you'll purchase it, read it, and embody its great practices and principles. Her way of seeing parenting aligns beautifully with how we see parenting in the Brave Writer and Brave Learner home spaces. So without further ado, I invite you to listen into my beautiful conversation with Dr. Becky Good Inside. Dr. Becky, I am thrilled to have you on the Brave Writer Podcast. I am thrilled to be here. We were just talking about the community that I represent, this massive movement of homeschooling that really exploded during 2020. Uh, Some of those parents have put their kids back in school, but there's a surprising number that have continued. And what we've discovered in the last several years is that the merging of this parent role with being fully responsible for a child's education presents some unique parenting challenges. And so today, I want to talk about your book, which I loved, by the way. I read it just like a page turner. I felt like you addressed so many of the things that I try to teach in my community. So I want to start by asking you about this good inside idea. Your book is called Good Inside. In our community space, we have a number of parents who have religious beliefs that start from the premise that we're not good inside. 
Uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit to that audience and just about this notion of how to understand being good inside, even if we have this religious context that has a slightly different take. Yeah, I'm definitely not an expert on religion, nor do I seek to, you know, question other people's religious beliefs that feel important to them or a key part of their identity. Um, And I'm also a big believer that we can hold multiple truths at once. So um, with all that in mind, you know, the idea that humans, kids, adults are good inside, I think on the surface is very simple, but actually is very nuanced because number one, we all do this thing where we collapse behavior into identity, right? Behavior is immediately observable. Identity is definitely not. So when I say kids are good inside, I don't mean that it's okay for your kid to hit their brother. I don't mean that it's okay for your kid to lie to your face, right? What I mean is that if we come at child rearing and parenting or even our relationship with ourselves with the belief that we are inherently good inside, we actually can be very curious about our behavior. We can be very curious because there's a gap between being good inside and doing not so good things on the outside. And then coming from a place of assuming internal goodness allows us to intervene with our kids from a very different place than if we assume I don't know, kind of inherent badness, which no one really says, but actually is the predominant assumption in a lot of parenting literature. So if I see my kid as, oh, they hit their brother, what an awful kid, they need to be punished, they're so bad, that has an assumption of internal badness. My kid did something bad, so they are bad and I need to punish them versus I have a good kid. They were having a hard time. They must have had something going on and not have yet developed the skill to manage that thing that was going on and it came out in a hit. So I need to stop the hit, right? And then I need to actually really think about how can I help my kid build the skill they need so they actually show up differently the next time. And all of that is possible while seeing my kid as good inside and helping really bring that goodness out. I love that you said it's a nuanced understanding of the child What I try to do inside the work of Brave Writer is start from the premise that there is a logical coherence to every action of a child. So whether we interpret it or not as good or bad, we can at least understand that from the child's internal life, they can imagine that this was the logical choice they needed to make to feel safe, to feel good, to feel okay in this moment. And for me, what I loved about you saying good inside is it seems to really underscore that idea that from the child's perspective, if we can accept that they're acting on their own behalf and we are helping them understand alternative choices that they could make that also support them and give them what they're looking for in the world, we could then affirm that they are good people in search of a better option, an alternative they don't yet know exists for them. Would that align somewhat with what you're saying? Yeah, you know, it's in general, yes, it's interesting. I find the language of like choice and decisions to be not language that completely resonates with me because oh, good. I, yeah, like I know, <laughs> Tell me I, more. But, and I say it too, it's, you know, like sometimes we say things for not like thinking about the exact, you know, words you're using. But, you know, when I think about the kid, 
who, um, I don't know, I said no to getting them a toy in the toy store and they have a tantrum. Or, you know, I say, you know, please don't throw that ball in our house and they throw it. I really don't think that our kids in their hardest moments or adults in their hardest moments kind of take a deep breath and are like, you know what I'm going to (laughs) do? I'm going to yell at my husband. I'm feeling really good about that decision. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have a moment of road rage. I'm just going to start rear-ending a car and honking. And I think we, I think it actually does matter a little bit because when we think about someone deciding to do something, quote, bad, we do have a lot of anger. It almost feels like they weighed options and they don't respect us or they don't care about us. We actually kind of really center ourselves often in those moments when we think someone else made a bad decision, right? Or, oh, you threw that block you know, instead of sharing it with your friend, what a bad choice. Like, again, I just don't think that four-year-old is like, huh, I could throw it or I could share it. What should I do? That would be a choice. A choice actually in my mind requires regulation and it requires mindfulness and it requires often forward thinking, right? Um, I never decide to yell at my husband when I yell. I, I don't think I've made that choice. No, that doesn't mean I'm not responsible for wondering about what led to that and making different choices going forward so I don't put myself in a situation where I am in a moment of reactivity and yell at my husband. That that 100% is still my responsibility. But I think this idea that kids make bad choices, I, I don't think they make bad choices. I think they're totally overtaken by their bodies. They're overtaken by distress. And whenever when any of us at any age are overtaken by distress, choice isn't in the driver's seat. Oh, that is so helpful. That's so helpful. That gives you a lot of compassion then for the child who is quote unquote misbehaving because it is, it's, uh, they're being overtaken. They're being overtaken by their reactivity. That's beautiful. I think that's exactly right. And I do think this is something that's missing a lot in conversation. So we'll have two kids in a family. And often, especially when there's two, there's a binary that can get created. I have a generous kid and a selfish kid and a calm kid and a reactive kid, right? And that's not good for either of them to be in that binary. But, you know, we think like, oh, my my son hit my other son. Okay, my younger one, I have to protect him, right? I have to protect him, right? Like when we really think about the fact that your older son in that situation was overtaken and was in this moment of being out of control, that's also a child in need of protection. That's actually terrifying. And again, we we often do this thing. We're like, oh, so my younger kid doesn't need protection? Nope, they both do, right? You have two good kids. But we often forget that our kids who are out of control are terrified by the fact that they're out of control and often don't feel like they have an adult who can stop them from doing things that actually terrify them. They don't like watching themselves hit their brother. They need our help as much as the kid who's seemingly the victim in that Mm. situation. That is beautiful. And it goes to the second thing I wanted to ask you about. You wrote, many parents see behavior as the measure of who our kids are rather than using behavior as a clue to what our kids need. I talk a lot about being a detective, that that is the parent's primary job. Can you say more about this idea that behavior is a clue to what our kids need? I love this. Yes. And I love talking about being a detective too. I also often think of like a naive detective, someone who like just (laughs) like they really, they're struggling to connect the dots. So they just keep asking a lot of questions. So I think the best way to think about behavior is a clue, or I often think of it as like a window into the house. It's not the house itself. 
And I like the visual of like kind of opening that window of like, oh, I've got to peer through this behavior. I have to stop it if it's dangerous, right? And then peer through. So I think the best thing to start with is an adult because I think sometimes as adults, as parents, we don't do the things our kids do. We we actually, I think, do things that are very similar. They look slightly different, but we're like, oh, I don't tantrum in a store, you know? <laughs> um, but we're like, I did kind of act out against the waiter when he told me he was out of that special. Like I did do that, you know, but I did not tantrum about a, you know, about a toy. And so like, I'll just use myself as an example, right? Um, I'm traveling a lot. This is true for my book tour, right? I am working more than ever. I'm super involved in the gunside community. I love doing events there. I've been busy, right? Um, I have things that take me away from my husband and, you know, okay, so let's think about this week. I've been working. I've been traveling. I've forgotten to check in with my husband. He's been taking care of the kids, right? But I think everyone can imagine how my husband's probably feeling, right? Okay. And then I come home the night um, I return from my book tour, right? And I see him and I say this. I say, oh, I would have thought you folded the laundry. Why is it not folded? Okay. Seemingly innocent comment. And we, I think we all know how my husband would react. And my husband's a very lovely guy, but he'd, he'd probably yell. He'd be like, what the something, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you don't appreciate it. Okay. So he's yelling at me and he's eviscerating me. Okay. Right. So now if I see the behavior as the whole thing, I would think this, what is wrong with my husband? He's so rude. Like he doesn't appreciate me. He flies off the handle. Okay. If I see it as a window, I might say in the moment, whoa, you're obviously upset. And I, I know we're not going to talk about anything productive when you're using that tone with me because I feel scared. So let's pause something like that. But then if I use it as a window, I'd start asking questions to myself even. I wonder what's underneath this. What would make someone explode under a seemingly innocent question? And then I'd probably say, oh, oh, that is the first thing I said to him. He has been taking care of our kids for eight days. I haven't really <laughs> checked in with him. I haven't really asked him much. I didn't say, thank you. I, okay. Oh, okay. Right. Now, then I say to my husband in that situation, maybe later when we called off, hey, you know what? I actually realized it wasn't the question. I think I've been kind of absent for a while or something like that. And I think you're also letting me know, like, I need to check in more when I'm traveling. And you probably also need more support when I'm not around. And I wonder if that's hard for you to ask for. Okay, we... No, I want to know the person who's like, wow, Becky, you basically just gave permission for his yelling. You basically just reinforced his yelling at you because you didn't take away his screen time. You know, like, I don't think... Anyone, if anyone said that, I'd be like, you're talking nonsense. I, I can't be friends with you anymore, you know? So, and yet we do this with our kids, right? So we say to our kid, no, you can't have a sleepover tonight. And they say, you're the worst. I hate you. And if we just see behaviors and think, you can't talk to me like that. You must not respect me. You now can't have sleepovers and you can't watch TV for a month. And then meanwhile, like we're the only one who suffers in that situation. Because like, yeah, we're like yeah. oh, now I can't. Let my, <laughs> okay. Like, I guess I'm alone with my kid for the next month, right? Like nobody wins. Definitely not us. Versus in that situation, after we cool down, wondering what would make me go from feeling misunderstood to feeling really, really angry? Mm. Well, probably if the moment of feeling misunderstood happened after many moments of feeling misunderstood. You know what? I've been working a lot. I've been on my phone a lot when we try to talk. Um, my child's telling me that all their friends have sleepovers. And that doesn't mean I have to, but I probably need to hear that story and understand what that's like, that she's never allowed to have a sleepover. Huh? I wonder if I did that. And then I said, no, if that would have 
ended that way. And then to be clear for everyone listening, this is not a way of saying, oh, so my kid's bad behavior is my fault. Are we saying it's my fault? I, I actually really don't think it's a parent's fault. I do think as the leaders of our home, as the CEO of our family company, it's a CEO's job to look at what's happening and what's not working in a company and be the agent of change. It's not their fault things are happening, but it's definitely not the associate's job. It's definitely not the 22-year-old's job in a company to change the dynamic with their boss. It's just not, right? And so I think that's a long-winded example of that difference between behavior and kind of curiosity about behavior. I like it because one of the challenges as a homeschooler is that we have requirements on us that we feel as a heavy responsibility. So you've got a child who's got to have their education. We can't just think, well, the school will take care of that. So you have a child who's got to learn to read, write, and do math. And then you have the child who says, I hate math. And they don't just say, I hate math today. They say it every day for a year. They look miserable every day. When I was reading your book and you talked about being sturdy, which was a really great word for me because I'm I'm extra on the empathy, compassion side as a temperament. So sturdiness is harder for me. I, I'm much more willing to accommodate and adjust and adapt. So when I saw that, I thought, okay, but here's my big question about it. If you are sturdy as your primary go-to, I see you're unhappy with math. You still have to do it. And you do this every day. It doesn't actually problem solve because even though on one level, we're giving them permission to have their feelings, that persistent feeling is a problem for them. It's painful. So one of the ways I've tried to address it, and I wanted to ask you if you felt this worked, is that I say, let's take the strong feeling of the child and the heavy responsibility of the parent both into account. So I say something along the lines of, I'm your parent. I feel responsible for your education. Math is a part of it. You hate it. I want to know more about what you hate. Is it the handwriting? Is it how long it takes? Is it how many problems I've assigned? What can we do to make this less painful? It's going to happen, but we're going to do it in a way that honors the fact that it hurts. You know, and I found with my kids, like being able to light a candle for some reason made writing fun, mm. uh, bringing them a snack while they did it, um, interval training, like two problems on Monday, no problems on Tuesday, four on Wednesday, none on Thursday, and a stretch goal on Friday. Like, is that what you're talking about? Do you count that as sturdiness or do you see that as hyper accommodation? No, I definitely don't see that as accommodation. You know, I think sturdiness really is this bound is this balance of boundaries. Um, kind of the way I always think about it is embodying our authority as a parent. But I'll explain what I mean by that because I definitely don't mean anything domineering. Um, mm, good and having respect for your child, right? I I think that us having boundaries and us being, you know, uh, embodied authority, right? Actually. I think answers a kid's question, am I safe? Mm. Kids don't feel safe when they watch their emotions that feel out of control to them, then make a parent or a teacher out of control. When they watch a feeling that's too overwhelming for them to contain, exit out of their body, and then actually make another adult change their mind, All that does is make a child feel like, wow, the feelings I was kind of scared of actually scare adults. Oh my goodness. I will never learn to manage them. These really are as bad and destructive and 
poisonous and contagious as I worry they are. That's why we set boundaries, right? And, and we set boundaries just to honor ourselves and you know decisions that feel right. Now, empathy and validation to me are boundaries best friends. We just often have learned that it's one or the other. To me, they're best friends. They're cousins and they answer a kid's question, am I real? Am I real? Are the things that I feel intensely inside me that there's no marker of in the external world, do you see them? Because if you see them, then I know that they're seeable, that they're Mm. knowable. So I think we're often given this like one thing is true model for being a leader around even embodying your authority. It's like, well, we're doing math. Well, we're doing math. Well, you have to do math. Well, oh, you're going to go to college and not do math. So I'm definitely teaching you math. That is, I don't even call that a boundary. I just no. call that derision. I don't know. I call that reactivity. I call that ineffective Control. communication. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I call it a lot of things that I you know, probably shouldn't say on this podcast. So I call it a lot of things. But that's not a boundary. A boundary goes hand in hand with empathy because you're really differentiating what's mine, which in some cases is a decision, Right. And what's my kids, which is their reaction. And then I think the magic happens in between, which is, okay, so there's this gap often. My kid doesn't want to do math and I know that they need to do math. Okay, so that's just those two things. The magic happens when we can figure out how to go from me against my child, where my child is the problem, to me and my child against a problem. So I actually think this would be a fun visual for everyone to do. Let's say it is your kid at home and you're teaching them math. You're like, they hate math. Okay. So I I'm actually, I actually am sitting at a table right now. So it's easy. So I'm sitting at a table and this is me. And let's say Julie is my kid, but I'm picturing Julie on the other side of the table. Looking at Julie at the other side of the table from a me against Julie perspective about math would be looking and kind of thinking these things. Why won't Julie just do math? Math is really important. Julie's so difficult. I know Julie can figure this out, right? Okay, that's looking at Julie like she's the problem. Where we need to get with kids, and and by the way, and husbands and wives and partners and mother-in-laws and colleagues and anyone, okay, is the point where me and Julie are now sitting at the same side of the table. And together, we are now looking at the chair she just vacated because we're on the same side and we're looking at it kind of wondering together, what are we going to do about this resistance to math problem? What are we going to do about the problem? And we can always move from the first mindset to the second mindset. I actually think we often need community to do that because we're so frustrated that we're like, maybe there's an answer, but I I don't think so. I think this is the exception. There's no way. There's no way. And then someone's like, wait, you're a good parent. You're a good teacher. You have a good kid. Let's figure this out. And you're like, oh, okay, wait, I'm coming down. I need some help. And I often think before we do anything with our kids, we need to first ask ourselves, which mindset am I in? And you know it from how you feel. If you don't like your kid, if you're frustrated with your kid, if you're overwhelmed with your kid, you're in a me against them and they're the problem mode. If you feel hopeful, if you feel collaborative, if you like your kid, then you're in a, wow, we're sitting on the same side of the table. And I think that's how we go from that idea of boundaries and empathy to actually an intervention that's successful in collaboration. And what you described, Julie, was really collaborative. And my guess is, this is my guess, the songs, this way you do sprints. I bet none of that mattered as much as the fact that a kid felt like you were trying to work with them Mm. instead of against them. I I think you're right about that. I think that the um, collaborative spirit in my family 
grew over time, obviously you learn from your children, right? You learn what doesn't go well. I had a, I remember I had a year where I had planned everything perfectly in my lesson planner. I wrote loving notes in the margins for my oldest son. And about three months into that program, he told me he hated his life. And when I heard that, I knew it mattered. Like I knew immediately this is bigger than just, I don't want to do math. This is the way I'd organized his life didn't feel congruent with who he was. Would you say that it takes a lot of courage to face the failure of your own best judgments and goodwill? I felt like I was giving him my actual best self. And then it felt rejected. And we had to troubleshoot and start over. And I was willing to do that. But it is, I think for homeschoolers, you're meeting yourself with a level of failure at times is really painful because you've taken on this noble task with a lot of heart and motivation. And then when your child gives you their real feedback, it can feel feel very invalidating of your identity that you've adopted. Yeah. Well, I think uh, my my brain is pinging in a million directions when I'll like take a deep breath and see which (laughs) rises to the top. Um, There's so many different things I want to say. So I'm going to see how many I could keep track of. Um, So number one, even your language there, I found interesting because as soon as something feels like an assault on our identity, it's a really good clue that we've collapsed some specific moment or behavior into our identity. So my presenting something in a certain way means deep down, like whether I'm a good person or not, it's like, I am going to be the best parent and caregiver and teacher. And the proof is in blank. And whenever we set ourselves up for that, honestly, even the good feelings we get are really, really precarious because it just sets us up to really be very fragile, right? And really separating what we know internally feels right. And then obviously, hopefully giving ourselves permission to you know, meander and figure those things out. But separating that from our kids' reaction is just so, so important, right? So there's that. Two, I don't know if you've ever um, read Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, but um, it's really long. I don't know about anyone here, but I, I these days I don't have any. I, I don't have time for a really long book. But I'll give you the the prologue, the first page of the prologue, which everyone can Google. Andrew Solomon, Far from the Tree prologue. I'm not going to get all of it, but it is. I think it says it best. First of all, he says there's no such thing as reproduction. The fact that we use the word reproduction, it is a fallacy. We don't reproduce. We produce. We produce, and reproduction is actually like this representation of the struggle we have as a parent. And that what parenthood really is, he says, is being forever cast into a relationship with a stranger. I, I, that is my most popular reel. I did a reel where I said that we don't know our children as well as we think we do. And it is an endless unfolding. My children are all adults now, and I'm still getting to know them. It never ends. They keep being a mystery to me. And that has been the only rescue. Each time that I have felt I've failed, I have had to re-understand it as an opportunity to know my child in a brand new way. And that's what rescues me. And that's so beautiful. And I think that if there's something I've seen as like such growth with people and kind of the good inside, it's often in the good inside membership is where we're doing like kind of the deepest, more long-term not long-term, but long-term changing, you know, long-lasting change, is people say to me, um, I now have parenting wins. My best parenting win is in the moment that I would have considered a parenting fail. So my kid says, 
you know, and it, we do have homeschool parents there, right? So they'll say, my kid told me like, I hate the way you teach me writing. I know what my, I hate it. I hate it. Right. And, and people say, whoa, 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 I'm a good parent who's going through a conflict. Right. So we ground ourselves in our goodness. We don't need that from our kids. We can't ever get it from anyone else anyway, but ourselves. And then this parent said this to me, they go, this is the most learning I've ever done about my kid. If parenting is really about getting to know your kid, this is my kid felt comfortable telling me what they don't like. My kid gave us an opportunity to figure something out together, right? Like that, that's a huge win. I even celebrated it. They said with him, like, I'm so glad you told me this. Like, yeah, right? And finding our sturdiness, right? Our enoughness in those moments and realizing, yes, the win is that process of getting to know our kid and helping them get what they need to be the version of themselves that only they can know what that is. And that doesn't mean we always bend over backwards. That doesn't mean we always say yes, no, but it means we have a different mindset in those hard moments. We go from, oh, what's wrong with my kid and what's wrong with me to, wow, there's a lot of really important information here. And let me just trust that I can listen to it. I don't know exactly where it's going to bring us, but I know it's important and, and I can honor that. I love this notion of more information. That is also a mantra of mine that every time you engage with your child, you're actually gaining more information. If you're open to hearing it, you have to actually hear it. You can't just let it slide across your head. You have to make eye contact. Um, I had five kids, so I found it difficult to give that level of attention every single day to all five kids, I got to a point where I kept track on a calendar, like, oh, I made eye contact with child three today. <laughs> because sometimes what I notice is we um, we get very much into behavior compliance mode. Uh, I was noticing that when I raised kids in the 80s and 90s, the goal seemed to be obedience. I say that today's parents' goal is just the manipulative form of that, and we call it cooperation. So all they've done is made it more manipulative, but it's the same idea that the behavior matters the most. And what I started noticing when I hung around parents is that they look over the heads of their children on a regular basis and they shout commands from the other room. So there's a lot of disconnection. One of the things I had to train myself to do was get to eye level, sit on the floor more, and actually keep track of engagement. And the engagement that I pursued was brief. I didn't feel like it had to be an hour, but I had to know that I saw their eyes and they saw mine at least once a week. <laughs> I know this sounds absurd. I don't know what you think about this, but I found for myself that sometimes when I would read parenting books, because I couldn't produce it perfectly at all moments every day with all five kids, I'd start to feel like I was failing. So I kept lowering the bar to experience success. And I think I, I found my level, but I wondered how you cope with these large families and that feeling of, in our case, 24 hours a day with this kid and a lot of compliance necessary, and yet still valuing these moments of disclosure. Yeah. So first, I just want to say, that's just hard. So hard. So anyone who says like, here's what you're going to do and here's how it's going to work, I feel like we should just be very skeptical about, right? Because you can't make things that are hard easy. Yeah, I think you can make them less hard. I do, but you can't make them easy. And like, I just, I wish that was something everyone knew when they became a parent. It's hard. It's hard for everyone. It's different versions of hard. Hard and feeling like you have a system where you feel supported is totally different than hard 
and feeling awful about yourself and knowing you're not showing up the way you want to show up. That's a version of hard that's spiraling. We can definitely get out of that, but it's still hard. There's no like rainbows and butterflies. And then, so that's number one. Number two, you know, I think about what you're saying about how, you know, our kids just want to be connected to us. And like, this is a way we can all again go into a guilt spiral. I also like, I definitely yell commands to my kids from the other room. I am on my phone when I shouldn't be. We all are doing these things, right? So no one is, no one's perfect. But I, I think we can start really small, right? And, and to me, one of the things that motivates me with my kids around connection is I just think about this a lot. Like, my mom and my dad, my parents must have worked really hard to disconnect from me when I was younger. Like, they didn't have a phone. They would have had to like open up the New York Times and like started reading a newspaper or like put on a TV show. Like, it's just so interesting to me. It's harder to be a parent now because there's so many ways to be distracted. Like, no, I would never read the newspaper while I was playing with my kid. That would be way too hard. I'd be like, that's hard. I could just scroll my phone. Like, that's a big barrier. Right. And so I think we need to have compassion with ourselves while realizing that there's more opportunities than ever to be disconnected from our kids. It's harder to stay connected because of distractions and technology. Our kids' behavior, first and foremost, comes from how connected they feel to us. So the more disconnected they feel, the more bad behavior, the more we can get more disconnected. It's just like a really bad spiral. It's nobody's fault, but we can't change it. So I do this thing with my kids. People have all these like, oh, special time, one-on-one time. That's all great. I just call it PNP time. I've realized all my kids need is play, no phone. They just need me to play with them without my phone in the room. And for me, I have to put it behind two doors because I don't even trust myself. I've done it behind one door. I hear the ping and it's like, I don't even know. It's like a moth to the flame. I'm like, oh, I don't even know how I ended up in my phone, but I was reading it. Like Apple just knows how to get me every time. And so two doors. And I'll say this to my kids. And I've seen so many families say PNP time totally changed me. It's like, all I have to say to my kid is, hey, I'm putting my phone away. I know my phone is distracting. I know I've been on it more than either of us would like. And I know one of the most important things is for you to have my attention fully. So I'm putting my my phone behind two closed doors. I'm only doing it. Even you could say, I'm only doing it for five minutes because there's a lot of emails I need to check, but five minutes is better than none. Let's do anything you want to do for these five minutes. You choose. And then you tell yourself, I've kind of done the thing. I don't need to do anything. I don't, I didn't just watch. I can say, oh, you're building a tall tower. I just join their world. And if I have five kids, I can't do that with every kid every day. Maybe I can't even do it for every kid once a week, but I probably could do it with every kid once a month. Maybe I even make a calendar, right? And those small things make a huge, huge difference. Let's pause for a moment. I'd like to share with you my brand new product, Growing Brave Writers. All the principles I'm discussing today with Dr. Becky are perfectly illustrated in how we approach writing in Brave Writer. We come with the sturdiness inside ourselves to say that writing is a skill our children will need, but then we connect with them around their feelings and experience so that we can support them in developing those writing skills without causing injury, pain, or trauma. What's really awesome about Growing Brave Writers is that the activities are designed to engage your child's body, imagination, and sense of authorial power. So if you've been struggling with all these programs that tell your kids what to write and what you get back is, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to put on the page, 
Growing Brave Writers teaches how to write. How do your kids find all those words? Where are they lurking in their bodies? How do they get them out without becoming perfectionists or antagonists? I show you all those steps. It's a very easy tool to use, and it even has the advantage of offering you the academic language that goes with the skills they're learning. So, psst, charter school users, you will be able to write narratives for your specialists that reveal the skills they're hoping your kids are learning. Growing Brave Writers is unlike any other writing product on the market, I promise you. It was designed with you in mind. How can a parent connect with their child to produce writing without pain or trauma? That's it. That's the whole goal. I think you're going to love it. Go to store.bravewriter.com. Click on the icon that says Growing Brave Writers. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to Dr. Becky. I love what you said about technology. Um, I, I wrote a book called Raising Critical Thinkers. And one of the pieces of data I didn't want to be true while I was doing the research is that our brains are actually being changed and reformed because of our use of technology. Uh, we are being moved out of the deep attention focus states into this hyper focus attention state of our ancestors. And so, yes, we actually do have to hide our phones just like we would hide a bag of potato chips when we're trying to watch what we're eating. The second you see it, it changes your entire biology. So I love that you say that. I think this is the perfect segue then to the number one question I get as a writing instructor, which is what about video games, <laughs> right? Like, honestly, that seems to be the Waterloo for all parents. My favorite quote in your whole book is from your son. He said, you ask us to stop doing something fun to do something less fun. I love that so much because what I tell parents when they say they want their kids off screens, I say, you need to give them something more interesting than the screen, like give them a book of matches and tell them to start a fire in the backyard, which always shocks everyone. But I said, what we're looking for is risk and adventure at the level of engagement that this adult tool that feels like you're driving a car because it's so exciting um, provides to a child. So is it the KitchenAid mixer? Is it a sewing machine? How do we balance this? How do we help you know, I don't want to ask a kid, get off the computer, sit on the couch and read a book. Like those two experiences are both valuable, but don't put them next to each other. Like create two different worlds for those. How do you see screen time, especially given your practice? Is addiction real? How much should kids have? How do we regulate it? Yeah. The, all the things. How much, how much time do we have? Dr. Becky, like, right. <laughs> this is like a workshop topic. Um, Truly. So... The way I'd see screen time is actually related to one of my most popular workshops, which is not about screen time because screen time is just a manifestation. And I try to always, in my workshops, give something really broad reaching, you know, that you can apply. Again, I'm like, parents have no time for like something that works once. Like you need to like take something for an hour and it hasn't worked for like months. I, I know as a parent, I, that's the only way it works. So we're talking really about frustration tolerance in my mind and also what we associate with pleasure and success. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So I, I actually am not deep in the research about video games and brain changes. It is very real research, very real important research, but I don't want to pretend to even be able to summarize it as well as someone else could. So I'll just say 
that all would point to also the fact that it's changing things and not great. But here's here's just simply how I think about these things. Kids, when they're younger, are figuring out how to operate in the world, right? In our early years, we are forming the blueprint for what we take into the rest of our life. And of course, we can change the blueprint, but not but. And it's hard, right? It's hard once you've built a building to be like, oh, I want to change the foundation. You can. And this is what therapy does. I'm such a big believer. And it's hard, right? So both are true. So one of the things in the blueprint of life is just how hard are things in the world? What do I expect to have to do and tolerate before I get to success? What do I have to what do I expect I have to do and tolerate to get to a state of enjoyment? Right. And if we think about things that kids have to learn, reading, writing, right, math, but then also other really important things, right? Friendships, sharing, hurt feelings, being left out talking about how you feel, asking for what you need. If you think about all those things, you have to work really hard and tolerate a lot of struggle and a lot of lack of immediate gratification and a lot of frustration to be able to do any of those things well. And then I think about video games and like all my son needs to do. And let me just say this, right? I, I My kids play these things. I, I, I tend not to be rigid, right? So like, it's not like I have a no video game house. I don't. But if I think about the image of my son playing a video game or an iPad game, he's sitting in one place, literally in my mind with his two fingers going like... <laughs> like he gets a prize or he gets like a lot of sound. He gets like this adrenaline rush. He gets the reward. He keeps going... It is mindless. I know this because if there was a fire in our house, he would not exit if he was in the middle of a game, okay? It's mindless and very low effort and very, very high reward and very satisfying. And what makes me very nervous about kids is building that circuit over and over. Mindless, easy, no frustration, simple, and a ton of reward and a ton of stimulation and a ton of success. That is the opposite of the circuit that's going to help kids in life. And so I guess related to that, what I think a lot about with video games isn't personally, even though I think it's interesting, I'll think about it after, Julia, isn't so much like, well, what can I offer my kid after? Because like the truth is, I've said this to... I used to say this to clients I saw in my private practice. They'd come to me um, wanting to no longer drink or wanting to no longer... Um, do cocaine, right? And I would just say session one, I was like, I just have to tell you whatever we're going to learn here is not going to make you feel like cocaine. Like I'm not going to get close to cocaine. I just want to establish this. Like if you have a therapist who can do that, like go find that therapist and I'm going to go to that therapist, but I will not make you feel like ecstasy makes you feel. And so we're, we're changing, we're just changing what we're looking for. And so knowing ecstasy feels like this, but has these pretty, you know, not so great outcomes that you're the one who's recognized that you want to change. We have to just create a different model. Nothing's going to make a kid feel like video games because our bodies love putting in no effort and having high reward. It's just enjoyable to all of us, right? But what I can do with my kid is really own, again, my authority there. And just, I have to be the one who's setting boundaries. I have to be the one who's saying no and tolerating their distress when they want to play more. Like, I think oftentimes we put that on our kid. Like, but I let you play. Why are you so difficult? Okay, fine. You could have more time when we want to say no. And we just don't want to tolerate our kids' pushback. But we need 
to tolerate their pushback. To say, yeah, I know you're upset and iPad time is over. And I just know if you get bored enough, honey, you will figure out something to do. It's not going to feel the same way as a video game. You're totally right. It's going to be different. And I know in this space, you're going to figure it out. And kind of like pausing after that and believing it and tolerating the distress that goes along with it. Wow, that is such an interesting answer. It's going to give me something to think about. Uh, because the way I have seen video games and my kids are older and they played much harder games. (laughs) Um, And so I watched a lot of frustration tolerance develop through the gaming that they did in high school, particularly the ones that joined teams and played internationally. Um, So look, and it could be, there's such a range of video games. So I guess I'm thinking about a lot of the like really stimulating kind of mindless games yeah, that like I can I see crush or, exactly yeah. that I yeah. see a lot of people playing. Yes. Well, 100%. And and so here's a question even about that. I notice like adults use television, right? As that exact same format for themselves after a long day at work, then they're going to spend time just watching reality TV. Obviously the least useful <laughs> form of entertainment on the planet, right? And yet we do it as a emotional regulator. And so mm-hmm. part of how I saw gaming, especially in those younger years, Roller Coaster Tycoon, uh, you know, SimCity, was this decompression, this way for my child to sort of regroup and have a little bit of private time that didn't involve siblings. And we had a lot of siblings in our family. So that was a way for them to sort of withdraw, create their own little world, and then come back out into the group again. I'm finding this fascinating because that's a piece I had not considered. And it's good for me to want to pump that back through the mind. Um, And I especially love what you said about admitting that maybe the thing they're going to won't feel like a video game. I love that. You you call this, I think, emotional vaccination. Can you talk a little about that? Because I loved that idea in the book. Yeah. I think I, yeah, that emotional vaccination, or sometimes I think the way to describe that approach is something so simple. I just call it, tell the truth. Just like, and it's like, yeah, who doesn't want to tell the truth to our kids? But all the time, we don't just tell them the truth. You know, um, and I think that relates to emotional vaccination. But you know, the idea of a vaccine, and this is not a political stance on vaccines. Okay, it's just like the idea of a vaccine is you give someone something smaller in advance to help their body sustain something larger when it comes. Right? Let's say that's the idea, and this helps so many kids around emotions. So screen time is a good example right? Or maybe math is like a good example. Screen time, emotional vaccination might sound like, hey, before we start this TV show, it's always hard to stop, right? Let's just like take a breath and look at that together. Like, oh, it's going to feel like, oh, I want another one and it's never enough. And it's not your fault. You feel like that. That's always how it feels to end screen time, even for me. So, oh, let's just get ready, right? Or if math is hard to teach in your home, you might emotionally vaccinate by saying, hey, I'm going to go get a glass of water. When I come back, we're going to get into that math exercise. Let's just get ready for that together. I know it feels tricky. And sometimes when things feel tricky, it almost tricks our mind into thinking we can't do it. And then we have all those I can't do it thoughts. And well, let's just be on the lookout for those. I have a feeling they're going to come. We'll deal with it. I promise you, yeah, what's going to happen next with your kid? It's not going to be, oh, I love math. Of course not. But it goes back to you can't make the hard easy, but you can make it a little less hard. And when you make it a little less hard, like so a little less hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I, oh my gosh, I love that this notion of sort of anticipating the 
anxiety or naming it, you talk about giving your kids mantras. Can you share what those are? Because I wish I had known that skill. I didn't know that skill. Yeah, I think it's so powerful for homeschooling parents also to think about mantras. So I guess my my visual of like when we're really anxious or frustrated in a situation is like just like a lot of scribbles, like kind of like a tornado of scribbles. So that's how it feels. That's how it feels on my body when I'm like that, which of course I get too. And part of what's really hard when we're frustrated or anxious is just like the bigness of that. It's messy. It's big. And like, we know this. It's what the Sunday scaries are. Like, oh, I have to order groceries. And, and whoa, whoa, whoa I, I, didn't, I didn't pay that bill. And I have to sign up for soccer. I didn't do the permission slip. And there's just like a million things. You're like, why am I even thinking about all this now? Right? What a mantra does in my mind is it gives us one thing to focus on. And it therefore kind of quiets these other kind of really, really big all over the place thoughts. And so it's very grounding and literally centering in that way. I picture instead of this like tornado of thoughts, I picture like a single dot and I'm just like coming back to it over and over. And so let's say again, you're going over math because that's really hard, right? And before the power of teaching things to kids before cannot be overstated. Right. Like, and also we have to practice skills when we don't need them to have any hope of accessing them when we do need them. Right. No basketball player for the first time is practicing foul shots when the game is on the line. And if they did, that would be a really bad strategy. Right. Like, (laughs) we'd be like, practice in the gym, practice in the gym. And they'd be like, but I don't need to make it then. And you'd be like, well, I guess, but that's, that's when you practice. That's when you build a muscle. Right. So I might say to my child in a calm moment at night, Hey, you know what I'm thinking about before tomorrow? I'm going to teach you this thing. It's kind of like this weird word. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called a mantra. And and I actually think one of the best ways to teach things for our kids is to share that someone taught it with us because then it's just like a little less pedantic. It's like, well, actually, my parent taught it to me or my gym coach taught it to me when I was you know, about your age. And it's just like when things feel hard, if we can say one thing over and over, it just helps us remind ourselves we're safe and capable. Anyway, so one of the things I remember is that soccer was really hard for me when I was your age. And my gym coach taught me to say, I'm just making this up right now, but like, this is hard and I can do hard things. This is hard and I can do hard things. And there was something about saying it that felt cheesy at first, but it actually helped me. So I'm just thinking about this before math tomorrow. I don't know. You might want to say it. You might not. And maybe you have a kid, you could just say that could be helpful good for you if you have that kid. I do not have that kid. If I said that, they'd be like, well, I'm not doing it because you said that, you know? So um, teach me your tricks. But then when the moment comes, and I might even write it, like put it on the wall, right? Oh, wait, before we do math, let's practice that mantra now. Oh, this is hard. And I can do hard things. And then you could use it. You could even be more concrete. You could say, okay, so this is going to be a weird kind of experiment. And, and Julie, you could probably tell I'm obsessed with education. Like I love thinking <laughs> good. about good inside in the classroom. Like I'm obsessed with it. And I'm obsessed with thinking about a parent's role in yes. education. Because I think too much we think about the getting to the outcome versus improving the process. A thousand percent. Right? So yep. then I could say, we're not even going to finish these math questions today. I know that's yes. weird. We've been, right? And all I want you to do is tell me the moment. Try to detect it as soon as possible when it gets hard. As soon as you have the like, oh, voice. And as soon as you have that, we're just going to pause and we're going to practice this mantra. And this is so weird. That's all we're going to do today. I'm not even going to let you do another question. I'm not, maybe one, but like definitely not two, right? And now I'm really changing their relationship with me, with the mantra, with their own anxiety. I can see this. This is this is in line with some of the things you I just you read recommend today so well, but I just love, it's even more, right? Like having a mantra to go to. So I... 
we have a, a policy or a practice that we recommend that you tell your child to only do work with full attention and best execution. And the second they feel that flag, you stop. And so even if they just get one letter written and it's their best letter and this second one, they feel they start to get sloppy, you stop because you want to give them the experience of having control over their best work rather than conserving their energy for low quality work mm. throughout. And so that practice has been really helpful for a lot of parents. But this idea of pausing and actually doing something about that feeling is so empowering. I just, I can picture all these parents being really relieved. The other piece, and I think this is subtle, but I love it, Dr. Becky, you're also helping parents have an assignment. You talk about them having a job and homeschooling parents live in this weird world of no teacher training, no parent training, and being expected to do both well perfectly all the time with no criteria. So they come into this job like, well, I have a math book. I remember school. I think they have to complete, complete the problems. I'm not allowed to help because if I help, then it's not the child's work. And I'm comparing this child to the kid in school. And so that's very difficult. You're giving us actual things we can do. And when you have something you can do, don't you feel better about yourself? Oh my goodness. Well, that see, as a psychologist, I used to always go to these psychology conferences and seminars and, and I'd hear truly like brilliant people talk and hear their ideas. And I would always leave and I'd be like, do. And I remember saying this to people and they'd be like, just wasn't that amazing? And I was like, no, no, I know it was amazing. But like, what do I do? And they're like, they all were like, they, we were like, I don't know, Becky, like go, I don't know. Like I'm not, I, I just, that was amazing. But I feel like that too. Like I love hearing ideas, but I want to turn them into action. Like I don't think insight always brings change. Insight is a precursor, but then someone often needs to help us translate the insight into action. And so Honestly, when I developed my whole good inside approach, and I, it was one of the things I like said to myself, I was like, when people read this, I want them at once to be like, that's a deep thought. I had an aha moment, but I never have an aha moment without a strategy to implement. That that was always a goal because I was like, that's what I would need. I mean, that is literally my whole book, Raising Critical Thinkers. I I have strategies in every chapter, endless numbers of questions because without practices, you don't actually generate insight. You might ping off of an insight, but you don't generate it for yourself. It only comes through the action and then the experience embedding itself inside of you, which is why I love your approach. This is exactly what I've been wishing we had in the parenting sphere all along. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about then is this idea of spending the connection capital. I read mm. Dr. Michael Bradley and Bill, Dr. Bill Sticksrude, and they both talk about this. And I thought you really wrote it beautifully. Can you explain what that means? The connection capital, how parents spend it and how they can make investments in the bank? Yeah, definitely. So I, and this, I think is really important to think about how to apply to every relationship, right? Partnership too. So right now, if you picture yourself on a planet, you can choose Earth, right? That, we're on a planet. Picture the person you're thinking about. Maybe it's your partner. Maybe it's your kid on another planet. They are literally on another planet. Well, generally, when we ask people to cooperate, we're asking them to stop doing something that matters to them on their planet, to do something that helps us on our planet, right? Like that's it, That's really what it is. Like We're like, oh... 
they don't respect me. It's not that they don't respect us. Like you said, my son say like, I just don't want to do it. It's just not that fun for me. Like I'm having fun on my planet. We live on different planets. We're strangers, right? And the idea of connection capital really is that we have to deposit into the connection bank account. And generally the deposits are helping kids feel seen, helping them feel connected, feeling like we care about their lives, feeling like we're curious and not judgmental, feeling like we listen and don't solve. And every time we do any of those things, we're like putting money in. And every single time, every time we say, time to put on your shoes, time to take a bath, let's go do this. And definitely for homeschool parents, right? Time to start this you know, next section. We are drawing down. And one of the realizations I had is like, wow, I'm a big spender of connection capital. like, And I I still even think I generally ask my kids in nice ways. I try whatever. I'm, I'm a big spender. And we don't have to feel guilty about that. As parents, we have to be good spenders. Like we have to take them to the doctor. We have to take them to the grocery store with us. Like we actually do have to do these things. But what it made me realize is I'm going to be a big spender. I better be an even bigger builder, right? And I think another visual versus the bank account is if I want my kid to walk across the bridge from their planet to my planet, well, I better be putting a lot of work into building the bridge from my planet to their planet. Because the more I build that bridge and fortify it and come visit them, the more likely they're going to be like, oh, I'll, I'll walk across back with you. And whenever we're in that stage of my kid doesn't listen to me, I think the visual of we're on different planets and there's no bridge. And I remember parents saying, but like, my kid is so difficult. Like, they could be nicer. And I'm like, they totally could. I personally don't want to put all my faith in relationship change and my five-year-old or even my 16-year-old. Like, I, I just don't think that's like the best bet, you know? And I find it very disempowering, you know, to be like, I'm going to wait for my kid to do something. If I know the result I want, I don't think I'm losing. I'm like, I'm winning if I'm making that happen or increasing the likelihood. So what are some of those bridge building practices? There's so many different things. And as you probably know, that's one of like the big chapters in my book. Um, Right. But like starting with this, right. Ask your kid this question today. What is one of the most kind of like annoying things that I do as a parent? Ask your kid that question. I promise you, your kid will have an answer. And then you continue. I want to know because there are probably things that are annoying that I can't change, but there probably are things that are annoying that I can change. And that'll be good for us to talk about. Another big one is just this idea of like joining your kid's world literally before you ask them to join yours. And that can mean noticing what they're doing. That can mean joining an activity. So I think a good example is, you know, I did this last night. Hey, time to finish blocks. Come take your bath. I didn't join their world at all versus walking to the room and even just saying, wow, you're building a tower. You look like you've been working really hard at that. <sighs> it's that time. You know, I, I have a feeling if you take a bath now, you'll still have a little time to, you know, play before you go to bed. Or even I don't say that. Even if I just say, oh, you're building with blocks. Tell me about that for a moment. My kid says something. Oh, I know this is a bummer. It is time to end. It's bath time, right? I'm so much more likely to get cooperation because wow. I've deposited some connection. That's amazing. I, I love the uh, what annoys you about how I parent you. I have a friend who used to, she was a homeschooler too, and she used to meet with her kids quarterly and ask them to grade her on her parenting. 
uh, because she was doing so much of the, you know, running of the family's education and her kids didn't have a meaningful way to give her feedback. And so she used this little like report card. They got to check off and give her feedback. And I just thought it was a really beautiful, symmetrical relationship, um, a choice that she made. That's this, this has been just phenomenal. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish you could have talked about? I know you've done a million of these. So maybe there's like that secret question that you really have wanted someone to ask you. And I didn't think of it, even though I have 20 sitting Two here. Two things I want to end with. So number one, Great. I never like to have a discussion or have anyone hear me talk without saying this. Don't think I do these things with my kids all the time. Okay. <laughs> like, because my kids have Becky as a parent and my husband all the time, he he won't anymore. But he's like, every time I sit, come so close to tagging your personal account and your Dr. Becky account, because I'm like, you would love this woman. You would benefit from her advice. So that is a hundred percent true. We are all humans just trying to do the best we can. And related to that, there's no more important strategy in the world than repair. That's one of my favorite strategies. Mm in the book. And honestly, in membership, this is really interesting, Julie, talking about learning. So we launched membership and we had a group in right away who are kind of our super users. It wasn't even public yet. We had all these topics, right? Listening, deeply feeling kids, right? We have a workshop on education, to a good insight in the classroom, reparenting. And I was like, oh, look at our starting library, right? And I know we're going to grow. And you know what a bunch of members said? I, I, I actually, my heart races, I think about this. I thought you said the most important sec thing is repair. Why don't you have a topic on repair? They're like, I see all this, but it kind of makes me feel like this is what I need to do. And if I didn't do this, I had the resources and like, what's wrong with me? And my heart sank. I mean, I, you know, I was like, oh my God. I was like, they're so right. You're like, let me repair with you right now. Literally. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So the 11th topic page was repair. I was like, look, it's I got to make these videos. We got to make a workshop. Like we take care of what we... But I was like, that is... You're so right. You are so right. And now that is the most visited topic page because this because we know you're like, I want to say, sorry, what do I say? What do I do? Just someone tell me the thing so I can be the parent. I want to be scripts for repair, scripts for something in the past, how to change the way you parent after you've parented that way for years. Like that is my favorite section. And that is what I want to end with. That repair is so important. And the last thing I want to say to your listeners, and Julie, you and I were talking about this before, is I'm obsessed with parents who homeschool because I just also feel like they deserve the resources. I mean, every parent deserves more resources than we're given. We're told how to like buckle them into a car seat and then we're like, have fun with your children, you know? But homeschool parents, like you're literally with your kids all the time. You play this these multiple roles. And I love the homeschool community. And then just to give feedback. I'm sure people write reviews. I love reading reviews when I'm on other people's podcasts to see what they thought of the episode and just excited to connect to this amazing community you've created. Thank you so much. Uh, I love what you said about repair. My mother at one point in my life gave me this message. I was 30. My parents are divorced and we were going through a hard time in our relationship with a lot of my feelings about all that. And she said to me, for as long as I'm alive, whenever another thought comes up about the divorce, I'm here to hold space for you to share that with me. And it was life-changing. Wow. And so it never ends, right? Never it ends. never ends. And we get to give this to our children for as long as we're alive and it is the greatest gift we can give them. So Dr. Becky, your work is really important and beautiful. And I appreciate you coming into the homeschooling space and sharing this wealth of knowledge. I hope that you and I get to connect again. Thank you so much for being Me here. Too. Thank you, Julie. This is great. 
I'm so glad you tuned in to listen to my conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy today. You can follow her at Dr. Becky Good Inside on Instagram, and you can check out her website, goodinside.com. Dr. Becky emphasized the importance of community when troubleshooting parenting. As many of you know, we have a membership community called the Brave Learner Home, where we do just that every day with our 12,000 members and our paid staff who help coach you through these issues. If you are interested in learning more about how to become a member of that community, you can do so for free. Purchase one of our bundles or sign up for an online class. We will add you for free forever. Go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer. That link will be in the show notes. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is 1-833-947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. Simply text the word POD to be added to the podcast group. And then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. Hi, everyone. It's Natalie here with the Brave Writer team, again, with more five-star reviews for you. Today's five-star review comes from Butch Lee 33 This podcast has given me the calm and confidence to facilitate home education in a way that works for everyone in our family. Thank you, Julie, for reassuring me, guiding me, and cheering me on, just like the amazing guru you are. Thank you to all of the support staff as well. Washing dishes and folding laundry has never been so enjoyable. Glad we could help you out there, Butchley33. Thank you so much for your review. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going, think well, I'm rooting for you. Thank you.